0: hello welcome to rusty sonnets the podcast where i take an old poem read it out give it a good going over before i wander off on one my name is niall and today we will be looking at soliloquy on an empty purse by mary jones i've got a feeling this is going to be a pretty quick one today because I don't really know a lot about this poet and there isn't a ton of stuff about her life available online and I know there's like libraries and there are decent places of research for decent researchers to go to but as I've often said before I wander off on one on this podcast um, this is purely uh, a pretense at academic rigour and uh and so it shall continue to be but i'm probably going to pretend a little bit less today because i haven't got that much to say so let's have a little look about mary jones and her life and then we can speak a little bit let's we'll have a little reminder of of the time that she lived in and the literature that was around at the time and how she fits in with that literature of the time and then we'll read the poem and then i'll wander off on one so mary jones was was born in 1707 Uh, she was born in oxford her father was a cooper, so she came from quite a modest background. But that said, she did all right for herself in her life. I mean, she, she was a reverend, I think, for, for a lot of her adult life. And when she died, she was the postmistress of Oxford as well. So I guess she is in charge of the post office in oxford um a postal service was something quite new it was actually around that time around the around the uh, 1700s so around the 18th century that's when the post office was established in england so the, the the act of letter writing changed a lot of things and it certainly changed poetry so she's seen as one of those poets of the augustine era or the neoclassical era which is the same era as alexander pope we looked at a while back in quite a long episode of rusty sonnets and we're going to be looking at um that era again i guess while we look at her poetry a little bit more about her life as i said there isn't there isn't a lot but i was able to wean from online so this was from a book published in 1750 called Miscellanies in Prose and Verse. So it was first published for 1400, 1400, 1400 to, to those of us who speak normally. Um, she had, she published it to 1400 subscribers, but then it had a commercial release after that as well. It was thoroughly critically reviewed as well. I'm guessing it was criti- well reviewed. I'm not sure. Um, she was, she was well liked among some of the uh, preeminent figures of the time. Samuel Johnson called her the Chantress. Um, and, uh, she was also, she had many wealthy friends. So even though she came from quite a modest background, she did have many wealthy friends and it was those friends that financed her ability to commercially release the book, which wouldn't, would have, would have cost a pretty penny at the time. So yeah, so that was, that was how the book came into being. A little word about the idea of subscribers. It's quite interesting because we sort of live in this time of a patronage model like Patreon but also things such as YouTube and stuff where the term subscriber is is commonly used and the common way of understanding how artists reach their audiences so she had subscribers so they were people who, who paid for I guess her work to be delivered to them now here's something as I said there was a working post office at the time which really wasn't available before so we have a time when after the restitution of the monarchy so after the end of a period of bloody civil war of the um, religious fundamentalist dictatorship of Oliver Cromwell and then the monarchy was restored again um, Cromwell's remains were put on display I think somewhere around Westminster after they were dug up by Charles I's son and i guess it was a guess it was a time of relative stability it was a time of the enlightenment there were plenty of scientific discoveries it was a time of course of coffee houses in london uh, where people were t- turning up to drink some very tarry syrupy coffee but having big conversations and so letter writing and literature were very much a part of public life part of a public discussion i think the 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 relative ease in which people could send each other letters and have correspondences had that effect on literature as well, and the epistle, which is something that I think came from Horace, the Horatian's influence on poetry at the time. The epistle was something. Well, lots of Latin poets wrote epistles, but the the, the idea of the epistle, the epistolary poem very much made a comeback so that a poet would write a poem addressed to another poet often about a high-minded idea but the poem uh, would obviously be be addressed to a big audience they wanted to be overheard in their discussion as well so it was very much a public poetry of the time, a public changing of ideas, an intellectual poetry as well. And finally, the form of the poetry. We looked at this again with Alexander Pope. So go back and listen to that episode if you want to look at sort of the way that f- formerly the, um, the Augustans made poems. So formally, the poems often relied on verse paragraphs and heroic couplets. So verse paragraphs being that there was no standard stanza length to each to each block of uh, poetry lines so when we have a group of poetry lines together there's no uniform length so rather than calling them stanzas we call them verse paragraphs instead and the poems are written in heroic couplets so that's rhymed couplets so a a b b c c d d in iambic pentameter and there's not much Um, there's not much overflow in the lines there's there's not much enjambment. there's they pretty much are end stopped so the rhymes sort of happen at the end of a certain phrase or uh, you know before at least a comma before carrying on so and and finally happening the arguments in these poems are made in very much in very concise piece by piece way also the use of imagery at the time, this is an important thing as well. They looked down on the previous generation of poets, which was, of course, the metaphysical poets, um, especially the way, this is Samuel Johnson's term, an image and an, an idea were yoked by violence together. So they looked down on the metaphysical poets for using quite outlandish images that don't really seem to have much in common with the things that they're trying to illustrate. And with the Augustans, it was always about r- introducing an idea or particularly with Pope introducing an idea and then introducing the image afterwards to illustrate the idea and how the image is often borrowed from nature and perhaps gives an idea of the harmony and balance of nature which coincides with the harmony and balance of the argument that's being made. So this is a poem which is spoken in quite a, a public voice. She is definitely speaking in public voice. Her poems were quite irreverent and witty and funny. And I think this is quite an irreverent and witty and funny poem. She wrote about everyday things, quite, quite domestic. And I think this is obviously quite a domestic poem as well, even though I think it has some, some deeper issues about how we live our lives. But I also think that it's a poem. For goodness sake, it's called Soliloquy on an Empty Purse. I think it's a poem that we can all relate to, can't we? So, yes. Yeah, I, th- I think I've said enough let's just read the poem Soliloquy on an Empty Purse by Mary Jones Alas my purse how lean and low my silken purse what art thou now one I beheld but stocks will fall when both thy ends had wherewithal when I within thy slender fence my fortune placed and confidence a poet's fortune not immense yet mixed with keys and coins among chinked to the melody of song canst thou forget when high in air i saw thee fluttering at a fair and took thee destined to be sold my lawful purse to have and hold yet you so oft to disembogue no prudence could thy fate prorogue like wax thy silver melted down touch but the brass and lo t'was gone and gold would never with thee stay for gold had wings and flew away alas my purse yet still be proud for see the virtues round thee crowd see in the room of paltry wealth temperance rise and nurse of health and self-denial slim and spare and fortitude with looks severe and abstinence to leanness prone and patience worn to skin and bone prudence and foresight on thee weight and poverty lies here in state hopeless her spirits to recruit for every virtue is a mute Well then, my purse, thy Sabbath's keep now thou art empty i shall sleep no silver sound shall thee molest no golden dreams disturb my breast safe shall i walk with thee along amidst temptations thick and strong catch by the eye no more shall stop at wildies toys or pinchbeck's shop nor cheapening pains ungodly books be drawn aside by pastry cooks but fearless now we both may go where ludgate's mercers bow so low beholding all with equal eye nor moved at madam what do you buy Away, far hence, each worldly care; nor dun, nor pickpur shalt thou fear; nor flatterer base annoy my ear. Snug shalt thou travel through the mob, for who a poet's purse will rob? And softly, sweet in garret high, will I thy virtues magnify, outsoaring flatterer's stinking breath and gently rhyming rats to death. So that was soliloquy on an empty purse by Mary Jones. I think a lot of us can relate to this poem. I certainly can relate to this poem. So before we look at the, as, as always, I like to do a few fly-pasts. This is what I'll always say to people if, if I give advice on how to read a poem. Uh, sometimes the best thing to do in the first reading is just to see what the poet is actually saying. If there is an argument within the poem that the, that the poet is making. And then if, if that's not so successful, whether it's successful or not, do another fly pass looking at things like rhythm and meter and rhyme or look at the imagery instead. Uh, I tend to do, I, t- I tend to, when I, when I teach, Um, more recently when I'm teaching because I think this is quite productive I get my students and I divide them into groups and I do one group looking at the rhythm and meter and I do one group looking at the argument just the the whole of the poem maybe also the voice of the poet who is speaking who are they speaking to and then there's another reading group that looks strictly at the imagery or or actually what I say is this is a different term I sound like a meditation teacher when I say this but I say uh, um, do a reading of the poem Be, be sensitive to be especially sensitive to either the rhyme, rhythm and meter or the voice and the argument or the imagery. So I think we'll, uh, we'll start off with that argument because I think the argument's pretty straightforward. Um, firstly, actually, I'm going to introduce you because I don't think I've mentioned this term before, but the term apostrophe. So that isn't the, um, punctuation. It is, uh, apostrophe as in a, d- a rhetorical device that, that dates back to ancient times in which Something is addressed normally within a poem or you know, within an ode. Odes make use of apostrophe quite a lot. And uh, you're addressing something that can't address you back. So you could be dressy, addressing something like melancholy. You could be addressing an emotion. You could be addressing, if we go back to Keats again, um, a, a Greek urn. Or you could be addressing an animal. Or you could be addressing um, the gods or you could be addressing someone who is dead and they're no longer able to respond to you. So there's plenty of things that can become, uh, you know, used within an apostrophe for a poem. So the apostrophe within this poem is obviously Mary Jones is addressing her empty purse and singing of the better days that the purse has had so if we do a quick run through in that sense of looking what her argument is she's addressing her purse she has some there's some lovely lines actually and i think i'll pick these lines out as i go through the poem so um yes she speaks about the person what a state it's become it's empty now um Once I beheld, this is the third and fourth line. Once I beheld, but stocks will fall, when both thy ends had wherewithal. That's a really interesting line. When she says both thy ends, what are the two ends of a purse? What are the two objectives of ownership for a purse? Uh, The first one is quite obvious. It's it's to hold money. So that's one of the ends of the purse. What's the other end uh, that had wherewithal? You know, she wants it to look elegant as well. She bought the purse, says later on, she saw it fluttering high at a fair, so she bought it because it looked good so it looked good and it contained money so its functions, its ends were aesthetic and functional but it seems that maybe the purse is now a bit worn out a bit tatty looking and its function isn't good either I I do the same thing actually I have my wallets, I don't know I, I, I wear out a wallet very quickly I always put too much change in the little change bit so that zip just breaks right away maybe I just buy cheap tatty wallets, that's my problem so anyway i get this so at the end of that the the, the first verse paragraph because they're not stanzas because it's not that type of poem Pardon me um at the end of the first verse paragraph yet mixed with keys and coins so per there's a lovely line actually my fortune placed so this is the final four lines my fortune placed and confidence a poet's fortune not immense <laughs> There's the understatement of the year, poet's fortune not immense. Yet mixed with keys and coins among, chinked to the melody of song. So yeah, she didn't always have a lot of a lot of coins in her purse, but luckily she had other stuff. Other stuff maybe in her pocket or in her bag. But would also make lots of noise, lots of jolly noise, alongside the change. Maybe gave the feeling of her fortune being more than it actually was, and maybe that image signifies that feeling someone might have who doesn't always have a lot of money, and when they come into a bit of money, and they feel like uh, the man about town, they feel like a, 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 you know, you feel like you're super, super plush and 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 well off when actually someone else who makes a lot more money than you might look at that and go oh my goodness that's a pittance and what they're going to do they're going to go out and spend it all oh my goodness poor people that's why they stay poor so she goes on to speak in the next verse paragraph she speaks about how when she first met it and it's interesting because obviously the uh, imagery here i'm just going straight into the imagery actually because i don't feel i can really go into the argument without looking at imagery one reason why is because as an augustine as a Restoration poet, a Neoclassical poet, the image and the argument are always closely intertwined. And unlike the Metaphysicals, who came out with these crazy images that everyone sort of looked down upon, until Modernism, maybe some Victorian poets reappraised them and actually found that their use of imagery to be very exciting, and and something that actually the, the violence of these these Metaphysical images would perhaps spur you into making different links and to more imaginative and creative thinking. This wasn't the case with these guys, the Augustans. The image could never overpower the argument. The image could never seem so separated from the thing that is being spoken about. There always has to be a degree of relation. So the image that she uses here... You, you get the idea in this whole second stanza. Let me read out the whole second stanza again. Canst thou forget when high in air I saw thee fluttering at a fair and took thee destined to be sold my lawful purse to have and hold. Yet you so oft to disembogue no prudence could thy fate prorogue. Like wax thy silver melted down. Touch but the brass and lo was gone and gold would never with thee stay for gold had wings and flew away. Maybe I'm overstraying it a bit but there's certainly a sense of wooing isn't there there's a certain catching someone's eye catching someone's eye and then this kind of matrimony is into that here isn't it my lawful purse to have and hold so this i saw you fluttering at a fair and then i took thee destined to be sold my lawful purse to have and hold so a very witty and light-hearted comparison to marriage here so um next line um yet used so oft to disembogue no prudence could vie fate prorogue. So I don't know if this is the relationship going pear shaped or maybe we're moving on to a different set of metaphors now, but use so oft to disembogue. Now disembogue, you might not know that. It's a lovely sounding word, isn't it? Disembogue. So, um, it's meant to be the, 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 common usage nowadays is, even though it's obviously not a word that's used a lot, it's to issue as if from a channel. So I guess from a river or to issue as if something, you know, river emptying out to sea maybe but there's a more archaic according to the merriam webster dictionary because i looked it up a bit more because i I wasn't quite sure if that you know maybe it does maybe it does work if it's issuing as if from a channel it's her little rivulet of wealth sort of um splashing out i guess into the collective wealth the common wealth of the economy or maybe just the banks or just ultimately all the money that we have seems to accumulate in other people's bank accounts in vast amounts normally in, Sw- in switzerland so i can see that metaphor there but this in vogue is also to pour out as if a container as if from a container and that's a more archaic use of it and i wonder if she was using that term you know when you just pour out a container so either way we get the idea that it's just her Wealth pouring away and not being replenished. And I mean, maybe that's the difference because a river is replenished. Uh, whereas the container, if it is more meant in the terms of a container rather than a channel, the container isn't really replenished, is it? Maybe it's a river in a very dry place where it doesn't rain a lot. I don't know. So like, there's, and now we go on to some lovely, um, you see, okay, so we go on to some lovely imagery about metal and so like wax thy silver melted down it just blah the silver in her purse just blah just just melted away um and i there's a lovely here so carrying on with the images of metal touch but the brass and load twas gone and gold would never with thee stay for gold had wings and flew away now i do wonder if gold if we think about marriage again and marriage is going pear-shaped you know the band of gold as they say um you know the wedding ring you know and, and and something flying away maybe maybe I don't know maybe I'm stretching it a little bit here but what one of the turn of phrase I really like here is um like wax by silver melted down touch but the brass and load twas gone touch but the brass and load was gone what is the brass I'm guessing that's the fastener for the purse you know the, the metal that holds the, you know when you clip your purse shuts that's what it is isn't it it's the brass touch but the brass and lo. Was gone, so a lovely, a lovely, witty, very. Again, this is the kind of thing that Augustans, the Augustans and the Neoclassicists would have loved. The idea that she's bringing in two different kinds of metal, but each, and actually three different parts, kinds of metal in these four, four lines, but they all represent something different, don't they? The silver just sort of melts away; it just f- flies away well the silver melts away but the gold the gold has wings and flies away but the brass is just that one piece of metal that she's left with which is the thing that basically is the opening thing that fastens the purse so we get so we we have two opening verse paragraphs where she laments the state of her purse then she remembers what her, her former glory of her purse when she was first united with her purse when when they both became a bit of a thing they both became an item and now she moves on to make an argument that sustains the rest of the poem um so in this third verse paragraph she talks about the virtues the virtues that accompany her poverty alas my verse yet still be proud foresee the virtues round thee crowd and she lists them. See, in the room of poultry wealth, calm temperance rise for nurse of health, and self-denial, slim and pure, and fortitude with looks severe, and abstinence to leanness prone, and patience worn to skin and bone, prudence and foresight on the weight. They don't sound very appealing, though, do they? They don't really... When these muses visit... I mean, these virtues, not muses, there's something completely different going on there, but when these virtues visit her... They're not exactly the most appealing company, are they? They're not the most jocund of familiars, are they? You know, you've got, uh, well, temperance is the nurse of health. That's alright, isn't it? Um, and then, but, but self-denial with slim and spare. Fortitude's like, look severe. Just proper like fortitude. Oh, I'm fortitude. I'm watching you. I'm watching you. Don't you give in and cave in to well, I'm watching you. That's fortitude. And, um, abstinence with lean, to leanness prone. There's an understatement again. Um and patience worn to skin and bone oof you see is it really patience here is it you know patience worn to skin and bone surely patience isn't you're not worn to skin and bone in this poem because you're patient you're patient because you don't have any money and you've got no choice but to be patient so maybe that's the point she's making that these virtues probably serve you better when you do have money I, without a doubt all these virtues serve you better when you have money if you have temperance when you have money if you're abstinent when you have money if you have fortitude and patience when you have money you still have money this is unfortunately one difference between rich people and poor people i think i know this is i'm probably going to be wandering off on one about this instead in a little while but certainly uh, i know that i can be not brilliant with money and these virtues seem to revisit me when i don't have any money oh there you are and so I think there's a sting in the tail of this paragraph, isn't there? Which is, yes, of course the virtues are there now. And that's good. You're reacquainted with these virtues, but we get this feeling that when Mary Jones gets a few silver coins in her purse again, off she goes, off she goes on a bit of a spending spree. She, uh, gets, she basically gets the, um, ye oldie com leaflet and, uh, starts flicking through to see what she can buy. So, and this is the, these are, so, oh yeah. I got a bit stuck on this last final two lines. So, final three lines. And poverty lies here in state. Hopeless her spirits to recruit. For every virtue is a mute. So, she can't recruit any... It's like the virtues, they're mute. They keep her company. But she can't really send them... She can't really send them out. Can't, you know, If if poverty lies here in state, so... Well, poverty is dead. I don't know. Um, hopeless are spirits to recruit for every virtue is a mute. I still maybe don't entirely understand these lines, but I'd hazard a guess that, um, the virtues are there to keep company and to maybe provide guidance, but they can't just go running out. You know, you can't just send them off on their errands. They're, they're, they're mute. Their, 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 their powers are ones of, of, of mood, I guess rather than powers of, of getting stuff done in the world. Because I guess when you ain't got a lot of money, there ain't as much stuff you can get done in the world. So we we move on and she speaks of all the things, maybe even longingly speaks of all the things she can't do now she's got money. But of course she has the virtues among her, so it's all right. So uh, the next verse, paragraph. Well then, my purse, thy Sabbath's keep. Now thou art empty, I shall sleep. No silver sound shall thee molest. Nor golden dreams disturb my breast. They're a bit shoehorned in the met. I think the images of metal talking about different spending and the things fastening the uh, purse are much more effective, I think, in the second verse paragraph than they are here safe shall i walk with thee along amidst temptations thick and strong catched by the eye no more shall stop at wildies toys or Pinchbeck shop nor cheapening pains ungodly books be drawn aside by pastry cooks but fearless now we both may go where ludgate's mercers bow so low beholding all with equal eye not moved at madam what do you buy very self-explanatory you can walk among those shops if you want but you can't spend any money there you know, so you can either be completely in despair at all this nice stuff that you can't have now. Or you can make peace with it and go, OK, can't have any of that. I don't have to worry about all that. I can worry about other stuff. What does she worry about? Well, it appears ultimately the stuff that she focuses on when she's brassic. Uh, she was a holy woman, so I guess there's her relationship with God as well. That was probably pretty handy. But um, away far hence, it's worldly care, nor done nor pick purse shout val fear I didn't look up what done was so I don't know what done is I mean I know done like I swear done in Shakespeare I'm going to do something I don't normally do I'm going to do something I tell my students off for doing I'm going to get my phone out of my pocket and I'm going to open up the browser which I'm sure will be just amazing Um, so done D-U-N definition Aha. Ah, ha, ha! ha I found it it's a bill it's a bill so when she says nor done nor pick purse shall I fear so we know what pick purse is obviously a pick pocket or a pick purse um, nor done so a bill um, you won't fear a bill and you won't fear a pickpocket because you're skint <laughs> you're not buying anything and you've got nothing to steal and you've got I don't know could it be a bill I can imagine if she's got no money and you well maybe she's got that temperance to not get stuff if she knows she can't pay for it right away so nor done nor pick purse shout by fear nor flatter a base annoy by ear snug shout thou travel through the mog mob the mog that's a cat the mob for who a poet's purse will rob very true and softly sweet okay there's a weird stand weird line break between these two lines which i'm not gonna you know lose any sleep about but finally, she says how she's protected because no one's going to pick her pocket. No one's going to sort of coax her with, uh, you know, shall I buy? Obviously, oh, well, that's uh, that's earlier on. So she's at peace. She doesn't have to worry. Having money almost invites dangers as well and things that will disturb your peace. Unless, of course, you have all those qualities of temperance already. And that's how you'll probably stay with money. But, you know, a lot of us who don't have the money tend to go a bit crazy when we get money so final three lines so she kind of splits what i find quite interesting and softly sweets in garrett high and then the paragraph stops which isn't very Augustan. i have to say i don't know if this is some kind of printing error or something i'm, I'm looking at the poetry foundation website um it seems weird the Augustans. T- well i'll talk about the form in a minute but the, the Augustans tend to you know the, the the unity of a couplets is very important and the wholeness of ideas and the symmetry of ideas so it's quite strange to have a an actual stand, a, a paragraph or stanza break after between high and magnify don't know why See, I added my own little bit there the final line then so she speaks about being in a garret um where she soars high and um obviously the idea of of, of a skint poet When we think about another um, 18th century poet, Chatterton, that image of a poet who dies in poverty, we'll have to look at him at some point, I think. So she's, she's, the garret is sort of something where she soars above, where actually she's closer to heaven. And I find that really interesting in the sense that today we have a penthouse, and if you're really rich, you live at the top of the building, you know, the penthouse but here we have the garret instead and it's the opposite isn't it the garret like it's, it's the attic ultimately the attic room which is the cheapest room in the whole house where the poorest person lives so she's in her garret she's soaring high so while she's poor and she's in the cheapest room that poets have a habit of dying in she's still soaring above you know soaring above everyone else but you know she cannot smell the stinky breath of the uh sellers which isn't very n- nice thing to say anyway out flatterer's stinking breath though so that's an interesting image in itself a flatterer's stinking breath the words are sweet but the breath the truth of it you know the breath represents the truth of it so it's a fantastic line and here's a line that tripped me up a little bit which i'm sure wasn't meant as a line that a complicated line to trip people up so after out flatterer's stinking breath and gently rhyming rats to death i was like rats don't you know i read it as rhyming rats with death gently rhyming rats with death how can you rhyme a rat with death is there some kind of riddle is there some kind of enigma then i realized no her only company are rats aren't they this is this is again this is oxford she lives in oxford i keep thinking of london i'm very london centric in my thinking i admit it but these rats i'm sure rats were in, in the, in the 18th century, rats people kept people pretty good company. As far as I know, that whole t- while, um, you know, the 18th century saw the introduction of a postal service and, and many other things that, uh, that sort of democratized knowledge and those steps towards, you know, into the sort of society that we live in today. Many foundations were laid. The sewage system. Oh, that had to wait till the Victorians. Yes. Yeah, or a proper sewage system. So, you know. Oh, it's just a lot of poo a lot of poo about the place if you're in a built up city i'm guessing bit of poo and wee bit of poo and wee all over and um so with that comes the rats uh, and so i'm sure rats kept her company being that she wasn't the richest lady so when she's gently rhyming rats to death i'm guessing that's maybe she's reading her poems to the rats <laughs> Because she has her subscribers, doesn't she? I think in our biography we saw that she had subscribers and she was published in London magazine. But maybe she wasn't one for giving readings within polite society of her work. I don't know what kind of coffee shop culture there was in Oxford. So I think um, her audience are the rats and she's slowly killing them with her poetry. I think, that's, I think that's that's a pretty much my reading of the argument of the poem but we also looked at some of the images within the poem. We don't have to say too much about the form. The uh, form of the poem follows, so let's look at the rhythm and the meter first. Well it's tetrameter, pretty much all the way through. Alas my purse, how lean and low, my silk and purse, what are thou now? So there's four metric feet in each line, be bar, be bar, be bar, be bar, about four stresses so iambic tetrameter that would be it now a lot of the um you might remember from alexander pope and she pretty much admitted herself that she lived in pope's shadow as a lot of other poets of the time did pope was a big influence on her but i think one little thing that's different between this and perhaps pope's essay on criticism is the meter is tetrameter rather than pentameter and as i have said before i'm sure tetrameter has that more song-like and jaunty quality and this is perhaps not quite as serious a poem as um, an essay on criticism or um, some of the other big augustan um, neoclassical essays so even though there is an argument and there is a sense of seriousness within the poem ultimately it's very light-hearted it's about light domestic issues and so the meter because they were very thoughtful about this kind of thing the augustans it would be the right kind of meter for the right kind of subject matter it would be the right kind of form for the right kind of subject matter that they weren't about blending genres or subverting genres they had very platonic ideas that there were very particular types that must be adhered to rather than these other ideas and where like today where we really stray and blend genres right left and center so tetrameter is a more appropriate meter for the kind of subject matter that she is using so that's so, you know so it is a jaunty witty light-hearted poem um and of course we have the rhyming couplets and i i quite like some of the rhymes sometimes you know the rhymes seem to be of words that sort of fit together or gently slyly contrast each other but they're not too outrageous either so um wherever some of the ly- rhymes that I really liked um seem to uh, just stuff like spare and then severe and wealth and health so weight and state so um yeah there's, there's sort of lots of rhyming words that, that seem to fit together, I guess. Now, some that really struck me out. No silver sound shall thee molest, nor golden dreams disturb my breast. Molest and breast. Now there's an interesting, curious, they, they certainly sort of, unfortunately, belong together. But it's an interesting rhyme to put together. And then books and cooks I quite liked as well, because she's speaking about reckless spending, and it seems to be, if I was alive, if I personally was alive in those times, that's probably what I would spend. Well, apart from beer, I'd probably spend a lot of money. And not bad coffee then as well. You know, probably wasn't the best coffee, but other than that, I probably would be. Being there were no video games and no Blu-rays, and um, it, you know, well, I do spend money on books as well. But I probably would be spending my money on the produce of cooks and books. So they do sort of go together. And then I and buy. Perhaps that's more well, the idea of the eye is strayed, especially in the market, towards things that we buy and and obviously commerce just commerce, especially now more than then, just infiltrates every aspect of our visual world. If you live in a built up area, you know that there's just advertisers everywhere. Final couplet, breath and death, there we go. You know that sort of subtle words that go together for balance? That's what those Augustans and those neoclassicists were all about. So that's a good look at the form of the poem and I think uh, a good look, he says He says to himself. I went right off on one there already. But again, I'm going for my phone again, this item. Actually, you know what? Can I congratulate myself about something? I've had this phone for nearly three years and that for me, I think because I have, I am aware of the narratives that I spin myself in my head about what a new phone will do for me and, I, and I'm actually, no, you know what? As long as it's got a camera, as long as it basically goes, tells me what bus I need to catch, I don't really need much else, so I'm going to pat myself on the back and be a little bit smug about that. Also, the phone's got to be very good at playing a certain sound file. Um, oh dear, a certain sound file that if I can find it right now, um, there we go. A certain sound file that I have to play every week from my phone speaker with it right up to this microphone, and uh, that that will often tell you that um, I think I've done enough. I think I've said enough about this poem. I really enjoyed this one actually I I enjoyed I I like the poem it's very witty and I certainly empathize with it a lot but it is now time for me to wander off on one so I welcome because wander off on one is an acronym that spells woo I'm all right at saying the word woo but we all know who the best person in the world is at saying the word woo (laughs) thank you very much Ric Flair I want to wander off on one about the argument of that poem and about whether I find it convincing or not, which is this idea about, I guess, virtue accompanying poverty. And because I'm not entirely convinced of it, I certainly... When I end up with not much money, and that happens a fair bit, I do try and use that as a way. I I don't know why. It's, It's this weird regret, which is that feeling I've already expressed while reading the poem, which is, yes, these virtues suddenly appear... You suddenly learn, how to learn to be temperate and patient and stuff like that because otherwise you're not eating before the end of a month. And I'm certainly, I certainly was a lot poorer than I am now. I have a much more stable life than I had when I was in my twenties. So I know this. I know, I know, well, if I say I'm poor now, if I have a moment when I'm poor, it's not, I'm not really poor. And I don't think she's really poor either. Mary Jones. I don't think, because Mary Jones, you know what? She had mates who were able to put up enough money to publish her work. she kept company with aristocrats. So while she was poor as far as her disposable income was concerned, I think she always had a roof on her, over her head and she always had food on the table. And she, I think um, she was a reverend as well, wasn't she? She had a community, but she also had, as I said, very rich people looking after her. So and she had her subscribers I guess as well. So when she's talking about being poor, she's really talking about disposable income, isn't she? She's talking about spending money. Stuff that she can buy in a market. You know, she's not in poverty, she's just skint. I think there's a difference, isn't there? Being skint and poverty. Um I have memories of when and this is so self-righteous but I do have memories so now nowadays am I occasionally skint yeah I'm skint definitely I've got a family and stuff like that you know but um, am I in poverty no I'm not in poverty I don't think I'm in poverty and and I don't mean this out like so in the west when we sort of say people are living in poverty people often sort of see footage of some people living in poverty and go but they've got a television and all this kind of stuff and it's like yeah because you can't just do we expect poor people to just live in boxes and stare at walls um you know it's not the same they can't just go out and enjoy their natural environment especially if they live up in built up areas especially if they don't live in 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 warm countries so poverty isn't just about whether you've got a telly or not you know you can have a telly and um and not have any food and people might say go and sell the telly you can't really just lug a telly anyway you get what I'm saying and then once you sold the telly once what do you sell next when you don't have any food so poverty is that so there are different definitions of poverty so we might have one idea of poverty of someone in a um, in, in, let's say in another country in another continent a country that we might call a developing country where there's a famine and people are genuinely starving and they don't have any of the mod cons that we have um, but I don't think it's right to compare that I think there's a few factors but certainly in my 20s I was at points when I wasn't eating when i didn't have food and i couldn't afford food and i had a job i was basically in in work poverty and i was in in work poverty at a time when it probably wasn't as bad to be in in work poverty as it is today in the uk um i probably would have used food banks if i'd known they were uh, they were around but i would buy i would i would have sometimes i'd have like just not a lot of money to spend on food so i would buy very cheap non not very nutritious food and um and other stuff. And I, I, I lost a lot of weight at one point. Um, when I, and so I, I venture to say that while I still had, I see, I still had a lap, well, a mate's laptop to write on. Um, I, I think I had like a weird word processor that I found in a hallway, which allowed me to write my first book of poems with two lines visible <laughs> on this little screen and format loads of poems like that. So I've been poor enough to, to, to not have any food. I guess that's, that's, and I, I guess I think that might stray into poverty and going out to a gardening job with, um, two marmite sandwiches in white bread. Um, that was my entire food for the day. Um, a day's physical work because after I'd paid my rent and after I'd paid my, um, travel and other stuff. And to be fair, I probably had gone out on the lash a couple of times that month as well. Um, I had nothing and I, yeah, I did very, and I didn't like begging or scrounging off people either. So I kind of starved. A lot of the time which i don't have to do now as anyone who has seen my my physical condition can attest oh yeah another thing i had actually another thing i had is um shoes were falling apart and i would sometimes have to sort of glue my shoes shut i couldn't afford a new pair of shoes and sometimes i would buy shoes very cheaply from somewhere like shoe city for like 10 pounds or something like that and i'd have to and and they would be falling apart within months um, I remember some posh bloke stepping on my heel, and my, I could hear, felt my heel rip, and he just went, oh, sorry, and he he ran off before I could sort of say, you owe me another £10, 10 pound to go down shoe zone and get some replacement cheap shoes. And so I'm walking around, and, I, and that's when I'm gluing the thing shut for at least another couple of months before I someone either bails me out and gives me some shoe money, or I'm able to maybe spend a bit of money on shoes. So I, I'm not in that position now, but I certainly have been in that position. And I know that poverty—it isn't that being that poor. But I know enough about that to kind of take issue with the idea about virtues accompanying poverty, and how poverty actually is something that can gnaw away at your self-esteem. It's something that can gnaw away at your mental health, and a lot of the people that speak about having nothing and sort of living in poverty and fetishizing it um are sort of these sort of you know like when you get these tech billionaires that go off on retreat and they wear like a monk's robe or something and they're like yeah i've been fasting and stuff like that because i'm fasting in order that if i do lose everything i can cope i know what it's like i have taught my body to cope with fasting it's very rich people are very into that and um I think a lot of people a bit a bit like when people make the argument well that person's got a telly that person's got a phone how can they be in poverty they're very aware of the things that we need like a roof over our head and food and housing but they don't really understand how money plays into our mental well-being and the things that can it's a bit like you know homeless people when sometimes they are begging and they're begging so they have money for drugs and alcohol and it's like, you know, there's not just the, the the physical challenge of being homeless, it's the mental challenge of being homeless as well. And that's where drugs and alcohol, unfortunately, can seem to help, even obviously they don't help. But you can't, you've got to make reality a bit fuzzier when you're in that kind of state, when you're in that kind of condition. Yeah, I disagree, ultimately, that, that there is some kind of nobility that comes with poverty. One, because when you're poor especially when you're poor and you live among people that have money there's a certain aspect of humiliation that comes with it as well and I certainly felt that and there's one image I'll, I'll leave it with which is there's a there's a book by the novelist John Fante who was a big influence on Charles Bukowski Bukowski said oh he's better than I am before saying he's as almost as good as I am the <laughs> second time round. oh bless you Bukowski you, you 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 such endearing violent misogynist so um Which he was, so I am not going to lionize him here. So, yeah, but John Fante was an interesting guy, and he wrote books like "Ask the Dust," is his most famous one. But he wrote another book called "Wait Until Spring," Bandini, and I read it at a time when I was having similar things. In which um, the main one of the main character, the main character is is this character that Fante uses throughout his novels, who's basically based on himself. It's autobiographical. And, but he has, writes as a character called Arturo Bandini and his dad is like a builder and he's a bit of this Italian alpha male, you know, first generation Italian, I'm guessing an Italian American who works as a builder and a sort of odd job man, but he's obviously poor and he keeps up his family. But at the same time, he's going off of this rich woman, this rich single woman and he's riding around with her in her car and stuff like that. And, um, and so. But but it speaks about how his shoes are falling apart. That's one bit that does certainly hit me at the time. And there's a bit which um, really struck me, really hit me. So this big, strong alpha male character, it's the scene where he's, he's alone with this woman that he's obviously having an affair with um, behind his wife's, not that much behind his wife's back. It's pretty much in plain view. And she brings him a box, brings him out a box and says, this is for you. And he opens up the box and there's a new pair of shoes. And he just starts crying. But he's not just crying he's saying, oh you're so kind i'm so touched thank you he's crying because he's humiliated he's been destroyed the shoes are the kind of secret shame of his poverty and by buying him his shoes she's undercut all of his pride and faced him with his poverty and his powerlessness within that poverty like i can just buy these shoes these things are the center of your being i can just buy them for you and it's and it humiliates him and that's why he starts crying and i really understood that and i guess you either understand that or you don't understand that um but that had a really big effect on me when i read that that was very powerful maybe it, i don't know maybe it helped me out reading it but um so yeah i i i i i get what she's saying in the poem but i think the virtues and stuff that accompany not having money in the sense that she doesn't have the money come more with being skint not having any disposable income and therefore not being as at the mercy of your desires, um, than it does with real poverty, which, which slowly destroys the body and slowly destroys the mind. And I don't think is necessarily, um, a cause of virtue. And yeah, and, and, and it's something that perhaps, um, as tiny as a little taste of it, I might have had in my life. It's something you don't really understand unless you've had a taste of it. And on that cheerful note, that was the end of Rusty Sonnets number thirty. Um Wow, thirty. That's that's a pretty cool number, isn't it? So um we'll be back next Sunday, probably. I know that this kind of thing takes a while for me. So um yes, I'll be I'll be posting this by midday on Sunday by the looking it look of it. So my 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 schedule is getting a bit looser, but you know, I I, I can be quite busy sometimes. So thank you for listening. Um, if you can share this podcast, that would be fantastic. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be having a two-week break at Christmas or not. I haven't decided. I don't think I'll have time to record the episode, so it's about whether I have the time to cram in a couple of episodes beforehand. Don't know. But um, for now, if you can share it with someone, that would be great, be it share it on your social media, or if you just want to share it by talking to people and saying, hey, this is great, that would be fantastic. And if you want to leave a nice review on iTunes, or say something nice about it and any website that allows you to, that would be great too. Hit a like if you're listening to it on SoundCloud. And um Paradise Book Paradise Lost Book Club, that's still gonna happen from January, end of every month. So if you want to start reading Paradise Lost from book one, um and then maybe contact me on Twitter, Poet P O E T N I A L L or Rustysonnets at gmail dot um it'd be really nice it'd be really nice to sort of have other people's thoughts to offer as well because i'm not going to read out the whole book obviously i'll just be talking about it in that podcast but it'd be good to sort of have other people's thoughts and ideas that i can share as well as part of that podcast so thank you very much for listening um as always have a good one bye bye